But look at look at your trajectory in terms of levels and increments. And don't move on to the next level until you feel like you've mastered the last one. Set aside time to work on your business and not as an owner uh, or as a founder, you are actually the biggest handbrake towards the growth of your business. Entrepreneurs need to take self-responsibility, self-accountability, and not be reliant on third parties like government to kind of map their success. Hey there, my name is Daniel Franco, and this is the Creating Synergy podcast, your business and leadership podcast where we speak to high-profile leaders and thinkers about their careers and dig deep by asking the questions we all want the answers to, uncovering their stories, strategies, leadership lessons, and their secrets to success. So before we jump into the podcast, I wanted to start this one a little bit differently and put an ask out there for everyone listening in. We've been looking at the data lately and noticed that many people who listen to this podcast haven't actually subscribed to it yet. It would mean the absolute world to me for those who are listening in to subscribe. By doing so, the more subscribers we get, the more high quality leaders and experts we get on the podcast and share their stories with you. And from that, the more we all learn. So thanks in advance. Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco and today I was incredibly honoured to welcome a very special guest, Martin Hasey, the previously the 78th Lord Mayor of Adelaide. However, he's also a name synonymous with entrepreneur success and civic leadership here in South Australia. From founding the renowned fashion company Youthworks and Soul Shoes, which he grew to an impressive 25 million per year, 220 employees and 17 stores across Adelaide and Melbourne, Martin's entrepreneurial spirit has always been evident. After selling Youthworks to a global giant, his leadership prowess further shone as he led the Rundle Mall Management Authority and co-founded the Entrepreneurs Organisation here in South Australia. But Martin's impact extends beyond the realms of business and governance. After moving on from the Lord Mayor of Adelaide, Martin was then appointed CEO of Business SA, where he helped South Australian businesses navigate their way through the pandemic and was at the forefront of driving economic growth and innovation into South Australia. Today, Martin represents South Australia working at the Department of Trade and Investment, where he continues to attract talent and opportunities to our state. He also sits on the board of SA Motorsport Park and expresses his commitment and dedication to sustainability through his role as the chair of the Premier's Climate Change Council. What we learned today is that Martin's journey is not just about business growth. It is a narrative of challenging the status quo, embracing innovation and relentlessly pursuing one's vision. So join us as we discuss the secrets behind his successful retail enterprise, his innovative approach to business, his leadership philosophies, and his views on the future of South Australia. Martin's insights are invaluable for anyone who's interested in entrepreneurship, leadership, and making a meaningful impact on their community. So without further ado, here is my chat with Martin Hayes. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. Today, we have a remarkable human being on the show by the name of Martin Hasey. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. I've uh, been keen to get you on for quite some time. I'll do a little bit of a, 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 a I'll rattle off a little a few little stats here about you. Not so much stats, but more of your career progression. So, 
Started off in the real estate world, founder of a fashion company called Youthworks and sold shoes. Um, I'm sure for people who are my age, you were very much part of my uh, where I went and shopped, which grew to heights of 222 employees in 70 sto- 17 stores across Adelaide and Melbourne, to which you sold in 2005. Am I correct? Uh, you went on to lead the Rundle Mall Management Authority, co-founded the Entrepreneurs Organization here in South Australia, became the 78th Lord Mayor of the City of Adelaide, the CEO of South Australian Business of Commerce, which is also known as Business SA. You're a board member of SA Motorsport, the chair of the Premier's Climate Challenge. You've spoken at United Nations events. You have, you're also a fellow podcast host, uh, which is great, which is the, your personal podcast. Now doing a whole bunch of work with the government in trade and investment, traveling across the world. It's a pretty amazing story. I'm... The definition of a hybrid model, <laughs> Definitely. I think, um, because Daniel, people share to me, ask me, what are you doing now, Martin? And it's not really something that I can share in a soundbite. So <laughs> effectively, I currently do a reasonable amount of work for the state government of South Australia, uh, and I also work as a private investor. And that's probably the shortest answer I can give, but there's a much longer version of that. So, But I've had a mixed experience, I must yeah. say. I've had multiple careers over the years. Absolutely somewhat of a chameleon and I will ask some questions around that later. So, but before we jump into anything else, I really like to understand context of a human being um, before we kick off. I like to look back into their early, early years. So to understand your earliest context and to understand the person who's sitting in front of us today, who was Martin growing up? I came from a family environment whereby my family, my parents were professionals um, no one, interestingly, in my family was in business yeah, okay. and I always wanted to be in business. So when I was, you say they're professionals and they're not in business, what do you mean? Oh, that? my father was a lawyer okay. and then he was a judge yeah. uh, and my mother was actually a professional investor. Okay. So um, in many ways she was in business yeah. but more on the kind of passive income yeah. side of the ledger. But So um, I had an interesting environment. Now they were relatively conservative in, in their approach. And But from a quite a young age, I always thought, no, I actually want to create something. I want to build a business. I want to go through all that journey and all those learnings. And within my own immediate family and largely within my extended family, there was no one in business. And often you hear that, oh, look, people who come from families who are in business are more likely to go into business for themselves. Well, that wasn't my journey. Um, I was a bit of an outlier from the start. Um, but it's what I wanted to do and I was determined to explore it. Which is brilliant. So looking back in your early years, is there anything that sort of you look back on and smile and just goes, actually, that was that was pretty formative in my life? Uh, my parents were pretty tough and pretty direct, mm. um, but also kind of, you know, very encouraging. They never really told me what to do. Um, they had high expectations of what I would do. Mm but they never really were highly prescriptive about what I would do. So I studied real estate. I studied property when I left school. Um, but my father passed away quite young at the age of 49 and I was halfway through a degree. And it really kind of rocked my world. So I changed course and just basically went to work. What, what did he – how did he pass away? He had cancer. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of the era where you just didn't go. And um, so it was, you know, fairly progressed before which time they diagnosed it. 
So, but I mean, 49 is young. It's very young. Um, and, you know, I'm now approaching my late 50s and I go, oh, gosh, I've outlived my father by a decade. It's mm. like crazy. But, you know, that does shape you. Those types of experiences I'd really think shape you as a, as a young person. I was 20 when yeah. my father passed away. So I said to my mother, well, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got a real estate licence now. It's one of the things I've kind of done uh, as I was going through my degree. And I said, look, I just want to get to work. And um, so I worked for a real estate company. And it was probably my first really kind of profound tipping point because the chair or the chairman of that company became in many ways my mentor. And he was in that era um, super successful and kind of took me under his wing and basically in many ways kind of showed me that life is not all beer and Skittles and a bed of roses (laughs) and that, you know, you've got to work for what you want uh, and that you've got to be good with people and he was great. He was just a very good communicator. So I started learning at an accelerated rate, I think, kind of once I got into the real world in my early 20s. Um, And I was selling real estate. I was kind of selling people's farms and people's homes at the age of 21. And it takes a lot for people to trust you with their, you know, usually their largest asset for a 21-year-old to be doing that. And I was actually quite successful. So I'm very kind of grateful for that mentor that I had at an early time. Do you, just going back to your parents for the moment, was there anything that they used to say to you? I mean, you said they were hard, they were, um, they were tough on, they weren't, they weren't strict in the way of stifling you, but more so strict in making sure that you work hard to achieve whatever you put your mind to. Was, it, was there anything they used to say to you? I mean, my parents growing up, there's one thing that I remember was, you know, Daniel, there's no such thing as can't, right? Like you can achieve whatever you put your mind to. Was there anything that they sort of said to you at early early age that has just stuck with you throughout your life? There, I, like, I think there was kind of a bit of a thread of conservatism in my family in terms of it was, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You've got to work for what you've got. Yeah. You know, those types of things. It's really interesting when you're young how impressionable you are Mm. with these types of comments from your parents. Um, But my mother was very supportive because in many ways my mother was self-made. And, you know, she really, for as long as I could remember, worked as a professional investor. Um, She supported the family and kind of, you know, looked after the family. My father had a very demanding job Mm. um, and was working, you know, very, very long hours and travelling a lot and as a state-based judge, but he'd be working the national circuit and a whole range of things. But um, there was nothing that really stood out other than they were supportive, a bit conservative in their approach, didn't kind of be massively prescriptive about what their children must do in terms of a career choice, um, but would always be saying, you know, think it through tread wisely, uh, you know, do the research before you jump in, um, do things in increments, don't try and bite off more than you can chew. It was that kind of upbringing. It was subtle. Still great advice. It it was good advice, you know. It was good advice. And I kind of appreciate the fact that my, you know, some parents will want their children to become a lawyer or they want them to become a doctor or they want them to become something. That was not my case. Um, they were very respecting of the choices that I ultimately ultimately made, for better or for worse. They were very, very respecting of that. So it was good. Yeah, brilliant. 
you obviously you, as you moved up through your career and you got into real estate and then ultimately started youth work. So I just want to ask you a question. The Martin who's at school, do the uh, was there signs of entrepreneurship in your early years? Was there, you know, you said that you wanted to get into business and you you, you liked that thread in your life. Was what would the kids at school say about you when they went to see you go on to create YouthWorks and and do the likes of, of you know, build build an empire almost in a business world? I think they may have been surprised. Yeah, okay. Um, I was relatively introverted okay. and I was relatively quiet. So if I kind of look back from today, um, if you had asked me then whether I had you know, or would be able to in future years be able to speak on the world stage and deliver, you know, 2,000 speeches on a multitude of topics in a multitude of roles over, you know, a couple of decades. I wouldn't have even believed it. <laughs> so I was very – I was quite shy. So there were a few things that kind of in my 20s that brought me out of my shell. So I think a lot of my friends would say, wow, that's mm. – we didn't see that coming. <laughs> um, I was probably a little bit – entrepreneurial when I was younger in terms of how I earned pocket money, you know, small-time stuff. But maybe there were some seeds there. But I was was the kind of the kid that read a lot. Um, And, you know, know, the kid who kind of kept to himself a lot. Mm. So I wasn't, you know, hugely extroverted or outgoing. That entrepreneur type of image that we have in our minds wasn't me. So, in real estate, doing some quite doing quite well, building trust with clients, selling quite a fair bit, from my understanding, and then you decide actually I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off a little business at the Brickworks. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Correct. I I bought this small little retail store at the Brickworks Markets in the 1980s in Adelaide, and uh, it was a weekend business. And I had this wonderful fellow who I was working with who kind of ran it for me. But I'd work in it. And what it taught me to do, and I was selling real estate at the same time, um, but it taught me how to trade. It taught me how to buy and sell. And it was something I wanted in a relatively low-risk environment to learn how to do, to manage suppliers, merchandising, you know, everything. And it was, you know, it was a humble little business, but it was – it was my apprenticeship mm. and I was there for probably three or four years, maybe a little bit longer and I progressively stepped away from it and the fellow that was running, running it for me ultimately bought it. But that then seeded the first of the youth work stores which was in the city of Adelaide, I think it was in Region Arcade, uh, in 1993 because I'd kind of built up a level of competency and um, knowledge mm. about how to trade. Was that in clothing, the first one as well? or uh, No, it wasn't. No. It was giftware. So okay. the Brickworks Market was a giftware store yeah, okay. uh, and the Youthwork store was a fashion store. Okay. Um, so that's when I stepped out of real estate and focused on the retail business when I moved into Region Arcade in 1993. So how does, how does the growth of Youthwork start from here? So, and where, did the, where was the idea born from? Well, it was a white-knuckle ride. Um, is the way I can describe it. So the idea was born out of not because in any way whatsoever was I like a fashion guru. Mm. I saw it as a market opportunity. So 
in the early 90s, which is very different to now, is that there were department stores, there were menswear stores, there were surf stores. Mm -hmm. This whole urban streetwear category did not exist. Mm -hmm. And YouthWorks was first to market. Um, I had kind of seen it in the US and I think I'd seen beginnings of it in the eastern states in Australia, but there was certainly nothing like that in South Australia. So it was a 63-square-metre store. It was Shop 27 Region Arcade. My commencing rent was $32,500 a year. And the first six months were an absolute white-knuckle ride because it didn't work. Um, it had a very strong accessories, giftware bias with a little bit of fashion. And that was my kind of carryover thinking maybe from the Brickworks markets. Yeah. Different products but same categories. And the accessories were a disaster, but the fashion did really, really well. So I had to very quickly kind of re-engineer the business, shrink the accessories component down to about 10% and increase the fashion component up to about 90%. And when I got that formula right, it really began to take off. But, you know, I was very, very tight on cash. So I was doing everything on the smell of an oily rag and I had to do things quickly. I didn't have the luxury to think about it too much. I just had to do it. Um, and you know, fashion is, you know, it's fast-moving consumer goods. So you've got to be quick, yeah. and especially with the youth market, you've got to be super quick. Mm. So it actually taught me some really good skills, I must yeah. say. I, you know, I was probably terrified at the time. <laughs> but it was really good. And that business, I think in its first year, turned over a million dollars. And for a small little retail store to, and most of that happened in the last six months, is for a small little store to have that turnover People would say to me, that's like record-breaking. Yeah. I didn't know at the time. Sometimes ignorance is good. Um, but we really got our formula right and then that generated a second store and a third store and on it went. On it went from there. We were, I was talking to my wife uh, about, <laughs> about youth work because it really did – it really was part of my life growing up here in South Australia. Um, it, it's kind of the only place that you would go to buy your, your – Clothes and I, my wife said to me last night, told me a funny story, which was um, she saved up all her hard earned to go and buy these. She's been eyeing off these pair of jeans that you had at, the, at your store, and um, she'd been uh, saving up all her, you know, hard earned. I think she was fourteen or fifteen at the time, and um, decided, right, I'm going to go. She went went to the store, paid one hundred and fifty dollars for these pair of jeans or whatever it was. Came home, did the old wash before you wear them, washed them. And uh, while they were on the clothesline, the peg fell off or something and it fell on the ground and their rottweiler ate, like ate these jeans before she'd even... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You're kidding. <laughs> Absolutely. I, so, I can feel the pain. Oh. <laughs> so you can imagine, uh, yeah, you can imagine that's that's her fond memory of oh, you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> gosh. Um, what a story. I'm so sorry to hear no, that. No, no, no. Well, I think, uh, I think if I said to a... Did your old man go back and buy you another pair? And she goes, oh, I can't remember, but probably. So, uh, but anyway, what, I mean, at growing at a million dollars per year in your first year and then obviously ultimately opening up more, more and more stores, you know, 12 stores across Adelaide and Melbourne then, you know, obviously went into Soul Shoes, which, you know, turned into another five or so stores. That first year, that's rapid growth and um, – were you were you set up mentally for that growth? I mean, and and was it revenue? What was was it high profit, or were you just turning up 
because there's obviously so much to learn and in your first year of business you're still quite green yeah uh it's it's an interesting journey it really is so i found that one you never stop learning i used to think that oh when the business gets to a certain size i'll understand it all you know it won't be so intense truth be told i don't think that ever happened i it's interesting i i think in terms of levels and levels have different degrees of complexity mm. associated with them and you've got to think differently and you've got to do differently to be able to perform at a certain level. And, you know, I, I learned all this stuff and many ways in the early years I think I was fumbling in the dark. Mm. But the, the first store was, you know, the first six months were like super stressful. But once I got that formula a bit better, it began to flow. Um, and it was uniquely different. What we were doing at that time was just it had enormous cut through. And I can remember in that little region arcade store on a Friday night, you don't see this, mm. but there would be a queue at the door of 40 people on a Friday night lining up to come in and the shop was so full that we would have to let one out in order to let another one in. Yeah, wow. And I would have four staff in this tiny little store with the music cranked to the absolute maximum. So the, 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 the atmosphere was amazing. Um, and then we expanded uh, from that 63-square-metre store to a 282-square-metre store on Rundle Mall. And that kind of became the flagship. In so many ways, that's where people got to know YouthWorks. Not everybody remembers the first shop. They all seem to remember the second shop. Um, and that was another year of excruciating hardship. I mean, there were, there were times where I think I slept in the shop. Yeah. Um, I worked so hard to get that business from one million to three million is what I needed to do because the overheads went up. Um, and once we'd kind of cracked that, it did become a little more straightforward. So the third shop and the fourth shop. But in terms of levels, what would happen is that you'd go from one to three, three to six, six to nine, nine to 12 stores and you'd have kind of a period where things would flow really well. Then you have this period where things would get difficult again because you had to reinvest back into your infrastructure. Your infrastructure needs to support a growing business like the behind-the-scenes systems um, are absolutely critical to sustaining and creating scale and I, I kind of had to learn all this um, and you've got to reinvest back into your business you've got to hang on to your retained earnings because you will get these calls on capital to reinvest back into your infrastructure and like in the late 90s we were I think I remember in, you know it's unheard of now I think I invested two hundred and fifty thousand dollars into a CRM system in the late 90s and CRM systems were pretty new at that point in time, and they weren't cheap. Um, and it was a pretty substantive IT investment. Um, and But we created a loyalty card system as a consequence of that. We ended up with 37,000 members nationally. It drove our business. So it was, in retrospect, a very good investment, but a big one at the time. A big so risk. a big risk, yeah. yeah. But I, th I think the biggest thing is not – the infrastructure, uh, it's not the systems or as critically important as they are towards sustaining success. It's your mindset. Yeah. It's your emotional and mental fitness in order to be prepared to play at another level. 
and that's easy to say and super hard to do because mm. uh, it challenges every fibre of who you are. It's walking in into a dark room and not yep. knowing where you're going, right? Yep. Like that's exactly there's no rule book. No. You know, no one's giving you a kind of a, an instruction manual no. <laughs> how to deal with this stuff. So I joined some business groups and I must say um, they were really instrumental in just networking with other like-minded business people who in different industries were facing very similar challenges. Yeah. They helped me a lot. Because at one point you hired an analyst, which uh, which I think was um, – it's almost like the Moneyball story, right? Have you, have you heard – Yes, I have. Michael Lewis? Yes, it, I have. Moneyball, which is uh, a, a great book, but everyone knows the movie more so than the, the book, which is about a baseball team hiring um, an analyst to understand who can get on first base the most and – not worry about who the big hitters and who the big names were. So they had a, a team of people achieving above average that went on to win like the most games in, in a row in history, right? Um, and, and so it, it sounds like you made a similar decision with your analysts, which was something not seen in the fashion world where you were concentrating, I need to know my numbers here. I did. I did. I, I'll clarify for your listeners. I hired a data analyst. Data analyst. Not an analyst for my, for Sorry, my, for my analyst, yeah, not for my own mental state, although I probably needed one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hired a data analyst, which was really unheard of. Yeah. Um, we had three buyers. We had a warehouse and kind of logistics and distribution center. At that stage, we had, you know, a growing number of retail stores. We were importing, we were manufacturing and importing. Um, we were you know, distributing to our stores. We were doing a little bit of wholesale work. We were selling online. We were doing a lot of stuff. And I thought, oh, this is getting away from me. There's just so much information and I don't quite know what it all means in terms of its veracity. So I hired a data analyst who knew nothing about fashion but knew a lot about data mm. uh, and who could read patterns in data. So when you're in a retail business, one of the most important things you can do is plan your inventory, mm-hmm. plan your spending, and that's called open to buy, yep. which is kind of how much money have I got to spend six months from now on product, on my inventory, because you've got lead times. Three months' time, nine months' time, those lead times will vary. The data analyst would just uh, – she was brilliant. She was an accountant. She effectively would delve into the data and say, well – you might think of, based on, you know, this period of sales activity, that this is where you should be investing more funds. I'm going to prove to you that on the balance of probabilities, it would be more prudent to invest into this product category. And here's why. And she'd roll out these charts and these graphs and these sell-through rates and these margins and these gross profit contributions and a whole range of things. So she worked very, very closely with – I was kind of – I was head of the buying team – as well as CEO, but she'd work with me and the buyers very, very closely so that we, with a higher degree of accuracy, could plan our open to buy, our forward spending. Mm. And the more accuracy you put into that process, the less markdowns you have and you get an exponential lift up in profit. Mm. And she was probably the best investment I ever made. Um, And the best part about it, she knew nothing about fashion. She didn't care about fashion. She just cared about numbers. And um, I've got that kind of inner nerdiness mm. where I love oh. analytics. Yep. Uh, and, she w- and she'd explain it in a way which was just so logical. Mm. 
because buyers get very passionate passionate yeah. about their products yeah. and so, so buy on emotion yeah not not on logic so she'd put you blend the emotion with logic and you'd actually get a good outcome so some a lot of retailers do that now i didn't know of any that yeah. did it then well done. You also said to me I, I, one of the keys to your successes in a previous conversation we had that if you could if you could bottle the culture at YouthWorks, you'd make money from it. What does that mean? It was extraordinary, and I don't even know Daniel whether it was by conscious design. Um, it happened probably as a result of doing a few key things repeatedly. We were very strong on the values of the organisation which kind of meant what are the values. The company was not all about us. It was not all about shareholders. It was, um, interestingly, it was very much about staff, but more importantly, it was all about customer. We were an incredibly customer-centric organisation. We were also very much about learning. I, I probably invested triple what any other retailer per employee would invest into staff training and development than any other retailer I could know. I remember in the day, Sports Girl were a big investor into training, had really terrific training programs. Um, and I had worked also briefly for Country Road and they were excellent. They were so professional. Um, so I, I had those kind of observations and learnings, but I built it into a YouthWorks way. And I remember every, even starting with a job interview for a new employee, um, and whether they were looking for a career in the retail industry or they were a university student looking for a part-time role while they were studying, we'd kind of have the same conversations. Is that you will leave this place considerably more equipped than when you start with it. Mm. We will invest heavily into you so that, you know, if you're going to become a doctor as a consequence of your studies, we're going to teach you how to deal with people. Yeah. You're going to need that skill. And this is how we're going to do it. So we would have that conversation right up front, interview number one. And if that didn't resonate with the employee or the potential employee, you knew you didn't have a good fit, so you wouldn't go on. Yeah. It resonated with a lot of people. Um, but it was a quid pro quo. And then it was, in return, we expect this from you. Mm. We expect you to go above and beyond for and on behalf of our customer. We expect honesty, professionalism. We want you to have fun. We want you to be curious. We want you to learn. We want you to work with your tele, you know, fellow teammates and we want you to respect the direction of your store manager. But other than that, you've actually got a lot of latitude. You know, we're not going to be highly prescriptive about everything. Sometimes you've got to come up with a solution and we encourage you to do it. Um, so we built this really strong customer service culture. We built this really strong learning culture. It's kind of an unusual thing to say about a retail company, but we yeah. did. Um and it was – that company was so much more about the people than it was the products, as good as the products were. It wasn't the products ultimately, which were the key differentiator. It was the people. Um, and my former team members from all those years ago still say it to me that that was fundamentally instructive towards the rest of my life. And I'm now doing this. And they're all working all over the world, which is fantastic. That's amazing. So this podcast was brought to you by Synergy IQ. I'll ask you a quick question. Are you tired of the roller coaster ride that change brings? Well, I reckon we've got to listen up because I think we've got something game-changing for you. 
It's time to buckle up and embrace the power of Synergy IQ. You see, change can be a real pain if it's not managed right. Turnover, disengagement and confusion. It's enough to drive any corporate leader crazy. But fear not, my friend, Synergy IQ is here to unravel the complexity and create great change experiences for you and your people. We believe we've cracked the code with our research systems thinking approach. No more guesswork, no more wasted time. We break it down for you, saving you from missed deadlines and budget nightmares. And our promise, timely, cost-effective and top-notch outcomes. But it doesn't stop there, my friends. At Synergy IQ, we're all about the people. You see, your team is the secret ingredient to success. Together, we'll help you build a high-performing organization by introducing our approach that speeds up change and taps into your people's natural ability to think fast and execute successfully. So it's time to say goodbye to chaos, confusion, and all those headaches. It's time to take charge and transform your organization. So if you're keen to help your business manage change in a way that no longer keeps you up at night, then check out synergyiq.com.au to learn more and book a chat with one of our transformation experts who can help you make sense of where to start. What's your advice to those who are trying to build their own businesses now um, who haven't potentially stumbled on your accessories versus clothing formula, right? And cash is still a problem. Um, therefore not being able to invest into their staff in the way in which they would like. What, 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 you know, because there's, there's, I mean, when, when there's an availability of, of cash, you can invest more, obviously, but when there's not, what, what's your... It's a good question, and it's not an easy one to answer mm-hmm. because the environment today is very different to the environment I had then, but maybe the learnings are similar. Um, I, I, I would... You know, I would certainly encourage people to be super ambitious for what you want to achieve. But look at look at your trajectory in terms of levels and increments. And don't move on to the next level until you feel like you've mastered the last one. And it's really tempting to go towards the next shiny thing and kind of say, oh, we could branch into these products, we could branch into this market, we could do this. If the keel on the ship is not steady it's not a good time to sometimes go towards the next level. Consolidate your position, then grow. Consolidate your position, then grow. And in many ways, we kind of did that over that 17-year period with that business. Um, Sure, I pushed the boundaries, but I was always strengthening the systems. My key advice would be, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a startup, if you're post-startup, if you're in fast growth, they're all different stages, but is set aside time to work on your business and not in it. And again, that sounds easy to say but difficult to do. After three years of starting my business, I ruled Fridays out of my diary. Mm. Now, I worked a six-day week. I worked Monday to Saturday and I had it all kind of fairly scheduled. Saturdays, I always worked on the shop floor for the whole 17 years. Um, But on Fridays, and in my own head, I gave it a little bit of a moniker. I called it Freedom Fridays. Mm. I would be in the office, but I'd say to the team, no phone calls, I'm not here. You know, if, they, if, if I'm going to take phone calls, I'm the one making them. Um, but I'm actually reading, talking to people, listening, researching about what the future looks like. 
And that's all I did on Fridays mm. for 14 years. And it's a really big discipline because you kind of your tendency is I want to be operational. Yeah. You know, I, I, I need to go and fix something. Well, you, sometimes you've got to step above all that. And I, I think in a way also it empowered my team. I just had to get on with it. And then also I began to travel a lot more for work, which means the team had to effectively run the business and so forth. And it taught me a lot about leadership and it taught me a lot about leadership at scale. But my advice in answer to your question is set aside time, uh, you know, and you can't, you know, realistically work on your business all the time. But sometimes as an owner... Uh, or as a founder, you are actually the biggest handbrake towards the growth of your business. I was, and I learned that quite early. Yeah. So I had to step away from it, and I did that one day a week, uh, to think about how I could structure it to be ready for two years' time, three years' time, four years' time, and when those dates roll around, which they do sooner than you think, I was ready for them because mm. I'd put everything in place. Um, and it was a really hard discipline but it was a bit of a breakthrough moment in terms of enabling the thing to scale from literally zero to about 30 million over that period. And it took a lot of discipline, but it was a good thing to do. It certainly was for me. What, what does that day look like though? I mean, you say it's a hard discipline. Where does someone start? Like what, you know, what, you know, let's say right now I went and booked Friday away in my diary. What does my morning look like? Did you plan your day on that on those days off? Did I spent a lot of it reading. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, someone had told me, I, and I know why I did this, someone had told me that Warren Buffett would spend some incredible number of hours per week just reading. Mm. Now, in those days he was reading newspapers and journals and magazines, right? Um, and I'm thinking, gosh, if one of the wealthiest individuals in the world considered his desk and read a newspaper for four hours, um, why can't I? So I would read about demographics. I would read about um, colour palette trends for the next year. I would read about um, customer relationship management systems and IT and point of sale and I'd, you know, read a lot about, you know, the emergence of e-commerce and I'd read a lot about kind of inventory control systems and distribution. I would kind of read about things where I could implement in six months' time. Um, and, you know, and I'd kind of research some crazy stuff. Mm. And this is all before I'd socialise it with the management team. Yeah. Right? It was just me percolating ideas on how this business could remain competitive. And just simple things like Friday nights, I had DJs playing in a lot of the stores. I hired a DJ who managed the DJ program. We bought consoles and speakers and the whole lot for all the stores. We did sponsorship deals with record companies. And we had this system in Adelaide and Melbourne whereby emerging DJs would basically put forward a sample of their music to my DJ manager and then he would vet them all. And then they would get to play in the stores. And a lot of kind of – that was a big DJ culture yeah. in those days, as you remember. Yeah. It was the best. <laughs> what happened then was a lot of those DJs got their first break mm. in a youth work store. 
And they would then become major club DJs yeah. and they'd look back and think, where'd you get your first break? YouthWorks. YouthWorks. And we would advertise them. Yeah. So we had a big database. So we would advertise that, you know, DJ Joe was playing in yeah. Melbourne on Friday the 17th of April, whatever it might be. Um, and that just came out of stepping back from the business and saying, what does my customer want? What's going to give it a point of difference? Yeah. Um, what's going to break some rules? What's going to break some conventions? I had a you know fairly rebellious customer, yeah. so they loved it. Um, and so we do all this stuff. But that only came as a result of stepping back from the business and thinking about things differently. And you've got to have time to do that. If you're, if you're drowning in the operations, you're drowning in the operations. Yeah. Uh, you know... And I always say to business owners since, when someone buys your business, the last thing they want to buy usually, not always, is you, yeah. right? So if the business is entirely dependent on you, you've just diminished the value of your business. So if you want to grow the value of your business, work out your systems, your team, your structures, your supply chains, your growth trajectory, all those things so that if the new owner may want to, sure, they may want to partner with you and work with you, but they may not. And if they don't, you're walking away so you don't want to retard the value of the business. That was a really big learning. Fabulous. Thank you for that. I think um, it's something that keeps popping up time and time again in my life, especially like the thinking time, the dedication towards that. You see, going back into the culture and, and the bottling of it and, you know, do you think – I remember you telling me a story that not only did you go off and spend the day – thinking and, and, and reading and analyzing um, about trends and demographics and all the above. But on the Saturdays, you would actually go completely opposite direction and go actually work in every single business and, and, and where you would then work underneath a store manager and report to them on the day. Do you think that had a really huge benefit for you and, and the business as well? And, and why did you do that? It, I did it because it kept me close to the customer. Um, I'd, I'd seen a lot of retail businesses kind of start growing layers of management which became progressively more removed from the customer. And so it kind of just seemed obvious that in a business which was highly customer or consumer centric is that, you know, we all had to be close to it. So the buyers had to spend time on the shop floor. You know, I had to lead by example. And... So every Saturday, I would front up at one of my 17 or 18 stores in either Adelaide or Melbourne at the front door at 8.30 a.m. And, but I never, ever told any of the store managers which store I would turn up at. Yeah. So it was kind of like, who's going to get Martin today? Yeah. And, and I would but say… They made a TV show on that. The, they remember, they, I can't remember what it was called. It was where the CEO would dress up as someone differently. I think it was a TV. Yes, yeah, you're right. I can't remember what it was called. So, so but you yes, were before your time. Maybe it was. <laughs> but I, I must love it because I would then say to the store manager, which department would you like me in today and what's my budget? Yeah. Right? And, and they would direct me. Right? You know, I was not the boss. Mm. When I was in one of my store manager's store, because it was their store, um, I was working at their direction. And they were encouraged to say, you know, you're doing a good job or pick up your socks. And I had no problem with that. And it kind of created a very egalitarian culture. Mm. And it created a culture, you know, one of, I think, several things we did, which kind of, we were walking the walk and talking the talk when it came to kind of customer centricity. Mm. And 
the and you know and it kind of I was you know I was competitive and yeah. so was the team so but you'd have fun and yeah. I used to love it so to me you know Saturdays was fun there was no stress mm. so I kind of had the whole six day week structured you know where but Saturdays was just terrific and so I, I would just turn up in a Melbourne store somewhere and you know work the floor yeah you know I think I think it's remarkable and like you said not only to understand the customer better but understand the things that potentially aren't working on the front line. Yeah. You, the things that would frustrate you would no doubt frustrate others. So it's like, yeah. okay, well, how do we fix this? And That's right. Yeah. yeah those insights would be so valuable. So you went on to sell the business. Yeah. We've spoken about selling and, and you can dance around the details to, to whatever level you, you feel um, you're happy to share. But, I mean, it's a big deal selling the baby that you've born and created and yeah. grown. How did, how, tell us about that. Um, I, in the last four years, so I was a sole director, sole shareholder for much of the term of owning that business. But in the last four years, I had a 50% shareholder who um, had actually come out of, uh, halfway through that kind of whole term, so to speak, I set up an advisory board. Mm. Um, and I had met a gentleman who had founded a large, many you know, many of your listeners would know it, national, international chain of retail stores called Just Jeans. And I met him at a function in Melbourne and we had a great conversation and I rang him a couple of months later and kind of had the pluck to say, um, Craig, you know, I want to set up a board uh, and I've got a lot to learn in this business. It's growing. We seem to be doing relatively well. Um, would you consider joining my board? Uh, Twitchy said no. And the – but I persisted. And kind of within 12 months he'd said yes. And he joined the board and I kind of gathered that – I think he had 444 retail stores. Uh, and I think they were turning over half a billion or something. But, but he'd started with one uh, on Chapel Street, Melbourne in 1970. And I – kind of gathered there's nothing that I was going to do that he had not already done mm. in some fashion. So he joined the board. We had a couple of other people on the board for about a year. And then he said to me, I want to invest into the business. So he bought half. So kind of four years before we sold out together, I had sold out half. Mm. Uh, and I said, okay, I said, and I was very clear. I said, look, what I want to do, Craig, is I just want to absolve myself of any personal debt. Um, so I can just focus on being the CEO of the business and not have to look behind me. Mm. So he said, okay, done. We'll, we'll work out, we'll structure a deal. So I paid off all my mortgages and all my personal side of my stuff. And uh, and then I then reinvested a few dollars back into the growth of the business with, with him. We recapitalized the company and then we really started growing it. But I did that kind of in a... Position where I wasn't on the high wire, so to speak. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're on the high wire. Yeah. And one false step and you fall off the – you could fall off the high wire. I, I at least didn't have to worry about that. I could just focus on growth. And and I've been on the high wire for a decade. Mm. So I kind of, you know, it's a, it's a challenging place to be but it's a place where most entrepreneurs have to be, mm. you know. Um, Craig and I then built the business up and, you know, I – think he probably entered when we were probably doing about 
$10 million turnover when we set up the board. We invested when we were probably doing $15 million turnover and then we doubled it to $30 million turnover type of thing. Um, and we got an approach by a publicly listed company who were very much in the youth sector um, but some of their product categories were in decline um, and they saw kind of youth fashion as a conduit towards kind of segueing their large customer base away from some declining industries like DVDs and records yep. and yep. CDs uh, into fashion, which was more sustainable, obviously, and for reasons that your listeners would clearly understand. And so I must say I kind of was – I wrestled with it. Mm. I was 39 mm. and I thought, do I really want to exit this business at 39? I thought I'd kind of be here for a long time. My business partner said – how long have you been doing this? And I said, well, kind of 15, 16 years from then. And he said, well, other than me, how many people have come across your bow and said, I want to invest or make an offer? And I said, well, no one. He said, well, precisely. He said, that's the nature of this industry. He said, they don't grow on trees. He said, I think we should look at this. So after a protracted period, we eventually did. Uh, and we sold out entirely to a company called Brazen Limited. Mm -hmm. We were a publicly listed company at that point. They don't exist anymore, I don't think. Uh, and they bought us out 100%. And I remember having this meeting with them about, uh, which is probably very naive on my behalf, um, what role would you expect me to play post-transaction? Um, you know, would you like me to be here for the next 12 months to help you with the migration of the business and so forth? And they said, no, no, you're leaving tonight at 5 o'clock. Right? Oh, wow. And I, I just remember how sobering that was that it was like just cut and shut yeah and i remember their ceo said to me martin like we are a big company we'll be fine <laughs> we'll be fine we know we know what we're doing see you later and i must say that was super confronting for someone who is very passionate yeah. and very vested yeah. about the growth of the business and the team and i would have just ideally liked to have seen that kind of soft transition mm. it was just See you later. See you later. What, is, what does it look like? So what does it look like when the dollars hit your bank account and, and you're out and you next day you wake up and like is there a, like there's, there's obviously you're elated and you're excited about what's just transpired but what next? Like, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, um, many entrepreneurs will face this when they sell. Well, of course, Craig and I retired all the debt. That was a few million. We um, employee entitlements. I think I kind of had forecast it would probably pay about fifty thousand dollars in legal fees to affect the transaction to sell. Well, that was one hundred and fifty thousand. Um, I had to write out millions of dollars worth of bills to settle the closure, so to speak, of the company. Um, and look, the transaction was relatively healthy. So, but you know, you've got exit costs. Yeah. And I didn't foreshadow that the exit costs would be so big. Mm. So when you sell a business, <laughs> my greatest advice to your listeners is understand your exit costs. Yeah. Because what someone's offering you may not be sufficient in order to justify you actually selling the business, yeah. although it may look like that in the first instance. Yeah. Now, look, we were, you know, lucky or fortunate or whatever you call it, but we did have a lot of exit costs mm. and there always are. And then you've, when you're a retailer, you've got to migrate your leases from your own PTY LTD into theirs or they were 
they were limited, they were a public company. That takes time. Mm. So uh, I probably behind the scenes was doing work for 12 months anyway. Yeah, wow. In terms of migrating assets and leases and so forth and you name it. It's a complex beast. Um, it's, it's liberating, it's frustrating, it's emotional, it's all of the above. A week after I sold the business, I enrolled to do an MBA. Yeah. I, I thought I've got to do something. Mm. <laughs> Entrepreneurs, want, my brain Entrepreneurs want to do things. Yeah. But I did an MBA and I must say that was… That's where you met Joel. That's where I met Joel. Joel Abraham, which is kind of how we met. And Joel Abraham is a very good man. And his family, the Abraham family, are just magnificent. His mum and his dad and his brother, um, they're just good people. And I really… So for those who don't know, uh, the Abraham family uh, built uh, the AIB, Australian Institute of Business. And what a wonderful success story that is. That is huge. But that was… I did, you know, I kind of had unfinished business with my (laughs) university education. Um, and to me that closed a chapter and I met great people and I really enjoyed the MBA program um, and it just gave me something to focus on. Mm. So, and a good friend of mine who's an entrepreneur who kind of built and sold a few businesses always said to me, Martin, when you sell, just say no to everything for the first six months. He said, everybody will come to you to do something, to invest in something, yeah. And he said, my greatest advice is to say no to everything. I'm not quite sure if I did that. <laughs> but I did enjoy the MBA uh, and it just put my brain into a very different space. I kind of probably went and learned all the stuff I should have done. But, yeah, um, I, I, yeah I'm not overly academic and I, you know, I love education. But the, I do believe that experience is critical. And if you're going to do something new, if you're going to – create something entirely new, um, there often is no education that's going to help you do that. Mm. Education's backward looking. Yeah. And in as far as it's learning from past experiences, packaging them into a product and selling it to you. Um, an MBA is a bit different in terms of it teaches you how to think. Mm. Uh, it teaches you about how things interrelate with each other. Mm. And to me that was really powerful. I enjoyed it. Brilliant. So as part of the podcast, we ask you a couple of questions. We send you an email um, to just jot down a few questions. And there was one thing that you said in one of your responses, which was that you're interested in really about challenging our own perceptions, which is kind of what you're talking about here um, in regards to education and, and about what is possible based on our own perceptions. And it, it really peaked my interest is that are you happy to sort of elaborate on that further so in, in paraphrasing discussing the topic of challenging our own perceptions in what's possible when i was a kid i probably wasn't quite sure whether i was going to amount to anything and i came to a realization that the only person who's going to be able to influence that is me mm. you know it It wasn't my parents, it wasn't my siblings, it wasn't my friends, it wasn't my cousins. It was ultimately going to be me. So I I think I learned fairly early about kind of taking personal responsibility for the good and the bad. Mm. And and I don't for a second want to kind of suggest that everything I've done has been, you know, a bed of roses. Um, I've had really tough times. And, you know, when you're growing a business at hyperspeed, you get to points where you just run out of cash or you run out of something, or you run out of energy, and you think, I can't do this anymore. I'm spent. 
you know, uh, many entrepreneurs in your listenership would relate to this. I know I relate to all of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, <laughs> it, there's nothing left in the tank, the tank. And you think, how am I going to fill the tank again? Mm. So it, it's kind of part of the journey, as tough as it sounds. Yeah. But I have a little saying, which I still say to myself today, every single day, is I'm not going to live a life where I ever say at any point during my life, I wish I had. So, and especially when I'm in my elder years, I'm not going to say I wish I had. Because to me, that's just, it's not the life I want to leave, mm. uh, lead, but it's not the legacy I want to leave. Um, it's draped in regret. Correct. Mm. So I, I took that kind of mindset into public life when I campaigned to become the Lord Mayor. I've taken that into everything that I've done um, and I think it served me well. It doesn't mean I'm kind of, you know, compulsive. It doesn't mean that I don't do my due diligence. It doesn't mean that I just kind of gravitate towards the next shiny thing. I really think things through. It's that kind of coaching, I think, from my mother at a young age. But um, if it's right, I won't die wondering. Mm. I'll do it. Um, and to me, I'll only do things, Daniel resonate with my values like here's an example if a soft drink company came to me and said we want you to be the chief executive officer of this global soft drink company and we're going to pay you 10 million dollars a year i'd say no thanks mm. not interested um, because i don't drink soft drinks yeah, okay. and so how could i be passionate about growing market share for a soft drink company i'm just not interested yeah. Yeah. i can only do things which resonate with me at a personal values-driven level. Mm. It explains why I'm the chair of the Premier's Climate Change Council uh, because I care about sustainability. It explains why I am the special envoy to Singapore and Southeast Asia for trade and investment for the government of South Australia because I want South Australia to be more outward-facing in terms of its engagement with the region. When I mean the region, I mean ASEAN. Mm. I'm very passionate about these things. And once you've got that in you, I find you then work out the rest mm. because you've got the drive and the motivation and the passion to go and learn the skills and make the connections in order to make that a success. Mm. Um, I can't operate any other way. Now, that might make me normal or highly unusual. I don't even know. I just know my own strengths and limitations. Yeah. So it's really important lesson. Steve Jobs quote 101, love what you do, right? Like it, it, it's the only thing that is actually going to get you out of bed every single morning when you do actually enjoy what you do. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, I think if you didn't love what you did, especially whether it was Youth Works or, or you know, Lord Mayor or CEO or whatever your role has been, it's, well, Oh, you know, the, even the thinking time, you wouldn't put time to that about thinking how do I improve this thing if it's coming from a point of not enjoying it. Correct. So, um, no, I really I really like that. And you, you, you touched on values there and, you know, you know, doing research for this podcast, I read about 400 different profiles of you, Martin. So there was a, there was a few to get through, but there was one that um, had this quote in it and it said, I remain passionate about the well-being of South Australia, which is everything that you just said then, the environment and the community. 
I believe in the power of education, leadership, communication and community services and these are undoubtedly my common threads. I encourage everyone to become familiar with their own. The common threads, is that is that the values? Is that what you're talking about? Or are these things that you have founded in your life that that's what you love doing and where you love being? I think the message there for your listeners, Daniel, is to do a self-audit mm-hmm. and to really understand what drives you, uh, what, where your competencies lie, where your interests lie. Um, and I'm not saying that everything we, knew, we do needs to be absolutely driven by passion. Mm. Um, you know, you can be very, very passionate about your local social club, but yeah. that's not necessarily your career, but you love it and you keep doing it and that's wonderful. But the so few of us in all of the busyness of life don't spend enough time actually understanding ourselves. It seems like such a basic comment to make. I've spent kind of time and discipline just working out who I am and what makes me effective. Mm. And it's not the things you say yes to. Truth be told, it's actually often the things you say no to. That when you really understand yourself, um, it's really easy that when someone says, oh, can you come and do this for me? You say, no, I can't. Sorry. Mm. I just, but I know someone who can but it's not me. Um, and the I'm much better at that. And I used to be terrible at that. Because I'd say yes to everything. You know, I just kind of like to please people. If someone would ask me to do something, I'd say yes, I'd work out how I can do it. Um, I'm very different to that now. I, I now have a very clear sense of where I can add value and where I cannot. Yeah. And although I've done lots of things, there are many, many people who are much better at doing things in specific areas clearly than what I will ever be. So I know where my strengths are. I kind of – my strengths to some degree are very much aligned with my interests but more importantly they're aligned with my values. And, and I only want to work with good people. Um, and I'm very clear about this is that I don't care how good the deal looks like. If I don't like you, I'm not doing business with you. In fact, I don't even want to see you again. So the – Andrew Downs. We've had Andrew Downs on the show and he said it's, it's essentially, you know, a good bloke or a good Sheila test is what he said. He goes, yes. <laughs> well, I, I get it. I mean, you know, Andrew's a good man. <laughs> and the, but it's it's so true. Yeah, I it's, I kind of have this analogy which I shared. Before I really do anything with anyone, uh, we'll often go and have coffee or lunch or something together, and then I'll look at how they treat the staff. Mm. If they treat the staff badly, I'm not proceeding. Yeah. Um, because if they're treating the staff of a cafe or a restaurant badly, how do they treat their own staff and how are they going to treat mine? Isn't that funny? I look at the exact same thing. Yeah. yeah. I even look at things like the people leave a glass in the room and not clean up after themselves or don't, you know, I even at, if you're at a function or a networking function, like you're at a dinner event or something like that and um, not even acknowledging that someone is grabbing the plate off you, I, I look at all those things as well. Well, you just filled up my glass of water yeah. and I'm very appreciative of that. <laughs> Many people would just fill up their own. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I notice all these things. Yeah. And I think it's a result of my retail background, mm. which is um, I always remember that, you know, be focused and be attentive on the details. Mm. You know, watch how people 
interact with you. We did a lot of training with our team about this in the day, about, you know, just watch body language, watch what people say, look at eye contact, yep. uh, look at a whole range of things which give you telltales or clues about character. Correct. So I, I think this stuff is kind of probably not spoken about enough, but it's so important. Is it, does it fall in the realms of emotional intelligence? Like where, where does this fall? In your like, is it is it a learned behaviour? Like, you, obviously, you taught the people um, in in YouthWorks this sort of stuff in customer service, but I don't know. I, I for me, it just it's intrinsic. Like, I actually just want to give, and I think, and why would I leave a mess for someone else? Or why would like they're a human? They deserve to be treated. There's a Brene Brown quote. I don't. Uh, well, not quote. She says that you know. The, home, the homelessness, the, like the actual pandemic with the homelessness is not so much that they're homeless and don't have the money and food. It's the fact that people just walk by and don't even acknowledge them as a human, yeah. right? Like that that's the part that I think yeah. is the most powerful. I'm acknowledging you as a human. I'm not treating you the way I would like to be treated. Yeah, uh, well said. Um, I, it's nature versus nurture mm. type of thing, isn't it? I think maybe some of us have a innate disposition, but I do believe it can be learned. I, I, I think consciousness is everything that if you, you know, sometimes just to stop and think and observe and watch is really instructive. Um, and the, you know, the, like just the analogy about the cafes or the restaurant and so forth, that's something I actually choose to do because it gives me an insight into character. So, but I've chosen to do that. I've chosen, you know, other people might just not be conscious of it. Mm. Um, to me, it just gives you a sense of what the future might look like. So, um, you know, and I've gone to places where people just think, gosh, you're so good with people. I want to work with you. Mm. You know, you're like, you're really respecting of people. You're smart. You're analytical. You're business savvy. But you're really good with people. You're actually decent. Mm. And to me, that's very, very important. Um, and I've had, opportunities over the years you know which on the surface of it seems so wildly attractive but i just think no it's not for me yeah yeah i agree and i think you know going back to the filling up of a glass it, it, it's the small things that matter i agree it, it, it really is and and it's not only just the one thing but it's the culmination of those little things that are really powerful um so thank you for sharing that. I'm going on, let's keep going through your career. I mean, you started entrepreneurs organization here in in South Australia, and, and you are a passionate South Australian. I, I know that. On a scale of one to ten, with the entrepreneurs piece here in South Australia, do you think they're getting enough support from government? Do you think they're getting enough? Um, do you think there's enough? to grab hold on and grow and scale here in South Australia? Do you think there's real potential? I think there's more upside. Yeah. I think there's a ton of upside yet to be realised. Um, I, I Back to my aforementioned comment, I think ultimately entrepreneurs need to take self-responsibility, self-accountability and not be reliant on third parties like government to kind of map their success because that's – isn't that what entrepreneurship is all about? Right, it's all about self-determination. So I'd, I'd say that as a starting point. Where can government do more? Is that wouldn't it be wonderful if more kids coming out of schools saw being self-employed, 
being an entrepreneur as the most admirable thing to do. Now, you surveyed a bunch of kids coming out of school. I just wonder how many of them would say that. You know, whether it would be, oh, I'd like a government job, I would like a safe and secure job with a corporate, I'd like to be a professional. Good on them for all of those. Yeah. <clears throat> but if you want to create a place which changes stuff, creates solutions, wouldn't it be wonderful to have an education system which is just championing people to go and do their own thing? Yeah. I also believe that South Australia would be so well served if we were more outward thinking and worldly in our approach to everything. So that anyone that sets up a business in South Australia would be, okay, launch your business in South Australia, that's your test market, grow it nationally, but your real payoff is going to be when you go international. And if you go into a business with that mindset from the day you started up, um, I think that's a terrifically good because there are huge economic benefits for the entrepreneur but also for the state in that happening. But I think there are also really strong social and cultural benefits that, you know, I look at jurisdictions like Singapore who are so interconnected, so many Singaporean entrepreneurs, their businesses might be based in Singapore but their revenues don't come from Singapore. Singapore is very small. Um, but they are doing business in Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, um, uh, Myanmar, a whole range of places, but their base is hubbing out of Singapore. We don't necessarily have that mentality and it's only actually a relatively small percentage of South Australian companies that export anything. There's a number that export a lot, so it pushes the numbers up, but we don't even contribute on an equation to our population contribution to the nation. So, you know, if we've got 7% of the nation's population, we're not 7% of the nation's exports. Mm. Um, and I think we need to be more attuned to that. It, no one operates in a bubble. Um, and it's the best way to learn how to be an exporter is to sell into interstate markets because that will test your systems mm. uh, and then that will prepare you for international export. And then, you know, start with a safe jurisdiction like New Zealand. Um, and then branch out. So I think it's a mindset thing. Governments are usually pretty supportive of anyone who exports anything mm. because it's very good for balance of trade. Yeah. So they're motivated to provide okay, support yeah. programs and a whole range of things in order for that to happen. Um, so an outward-facing export-driven economy to me is absolutely critical for the success of certainly this place. Yeah, great advice. Uh, proud dad moment. My um, my daughters. I've got two daughters, uh, twelve and almost ten. It's uh, about a month away. I'm told thirty days or something. So, um, someone's counting. Someone's counting. Actually, probably less than that now. Come to think of it, uh, when they had a school career day, you know, where you come and dressed as what you want to, like still in junior school. So come and come in and dressed as what you want to be when you grow up. And um, both my daughters went in there just some jeans and a T-shirt and went as entrepreneurs. <laughs> they literally like oh, that's only right. two in the school. Really? Only that, two in that, the school. That is fabulous. And we're in the car this morning actually and my daughter says to me, Dad, you know like how I said I wanted to be a podiatrist because my, my wife works. She runs a podiatry clinic. So you know how I said I wanted to be a podiatrist? Yeah, she goes, 
I just want to run the business side. I don't want to deal with someone's disgusting feet. I just want to. I just want to run the business. I reckon I could build a big, like a big thing, right? And I was oh, like, she, she's working on it before yeah. she's working in it. Yeah. So good on it. Yeah. So uh, I said, yeah, I know, but you kind of need. Yeah. Anyway, we're uh, her, the mindset's there. So proud, proud dad moment for me. That's terrific. Um, look, you you, you be- went on to become the um, the Lord Mayor, seventy eighth Lord Mayor of of. Adelaide and the CEO of Business SA, two very important, obviously, areas in here in South Australia. First and foremost, being called a lord is a bit weird. What's, what's That's interesting. So between 1840 and 1919, if my memory serves me correctly, um, it was the Mayor of Adelaide. Yeah. And in recognition of South Australia's contribution to World War I, the role of Mayor of Adelaide was actually elevated to Lord Mayor of Adelaide. That's how it came about. Not many people know that. Um, And, I mean, that was a true honour to do that role. Um, I didn't do that because I was kind of uh, intending to embark upon a political career. To me, it was a public service, Mm -hmm. as in, you know, putting the service back into public service type of approach. Um, And it was very much a community-driven role. Um, and I gave that every iota of what I had, I can assure you. So, yeah. And people would say, oh, it's the Lord Mayor's role full time. You know, it was like, <laughs> it's like, you know, it was like 80 hours a week. Yeah, wow. And, um, and, and, and the number 218 had a, sim, a special symbol, symbolization for you as well. Yeah, well it? done. Yes, it did. Um, I, I was elected, I think, by a margin of 218 votes. And um, someone had told me also that when – Something about William Light, who, of course, the founder of Adelaide in terms of the surveyor, uh, he had put forward a plan for the plan of Adelaide yeah. and he won that vote by 218 votes. Um, but it's also the last two, three digits of my telephone number. There you go. So it's kind of a bit serendipitous. 218. 218. So, but the, um, you know, I mean, that was a leap into the unknown, I can assure you. Yeah. I, I, uh, no one had told me at that point in time God, uh, <laughs> that no one had ever, ever in the history of Adelaide been directly elected to the position of Lord Mayor without first being a sitting councillor. Mm. Um, I'm pretty glad that I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I think ignorance is a wonderful thing because yeah. I probably would have had a meltdown. But um, I won that by a fairly narrow margin and kind of worked extremely judiciously. But I, I viewed that as a community role. Yeah, that, That's it. It was just a role to represent Adelaide and its community, whether in its in the narrower sense and the wider sense. So you would deal with things which were, you know, very, very kind of granular and then you'd be in Canberra or you'd be overseas advocating for wider Adelaide on some big issues. So it was great. I am told and, and I, uh, I flicked the text to Joel this morning. I said, Joel, what's a, what's a question you would ask Martin on the show? And he said, ask him about his work ethic. This guy goes harder than anyone I know. Um, and, and what would be interesting is to understand what does that look like across multiple roles? I mean, you, we talked about you earlier in this podcast being a chameleon and, and being at working in different multiple areas. Do you have the same work ethic in everywhere that you work and what does your typical day look like? That's interesting because I made a really um, conscious change, Daniel. I, for all of my career, I've largely done one thing 
and been totally vested in terms of it, whether that was the chief executive of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry Business SA, whether that was Lord Mayor, whether managing Rundle Moore, whether that was my own business. Yeah. And that's kind of like, you know, 30 years of having a pretty consistent MO in terms of how I do things. I made a conscious decision that I'm going to reinvent. And, the, and I've done it a few times. But so now I probably have four roles, mm. right? Maybe more. Um, and half of my working week is government-related, half of my working week is private investment-related. And that's a very conscious, deliberate decision that I've made. Um, and it's challenging for someone who's only really done one thing at 110 miles an hour. And I have a prodigious work ethic. Joel's yeah, right. Yeah. Joel was on the board or is on the board of Business SA and he was a, just is a great supporter. Yeah. Um, but I don't, look, I can't do things by half because I'm just not built that way. Mm. So even if I'm doing a number of part-time roles, I'll still give them their due attention and not do them if I can't give them my full attention, if that makes sense. So, um, and I do take on big things. So, you know, chairing the Premier's Climate Change Council, I mean, there's, that's a kind of a fairly big endeavour. Yeah, no doubt. Um, the trade role in Southeast Asia is a lot of responsibility, but they're all part-time roles. Mm. Um and I think over time I will probably build up the passive income side of the ledger as I reduce the earned income side of the ledger. That's certainly the plan. So the investment um, work that I do is absolutely business critical to my strategy um, because, you know, I probably don't want to be working the hours that I've worked forever. Mm. Um, so but, you have your own life strategy. Yeah, but I'll never stop working. Yeah. I, I actually don't believe in retirement. Um, I honestly will have no idea what to do with myself if I was retired. Um, but I just want to work on my completely and utterly on my own terms. So that means the passive income side of the ledger is important in that context. Um, and, you know, there's much of the world which I want to see. Yeah. We're not here for a great period of time. So um, I'm fortunate that over the years I've travelled a lot. I've travelled more globally than I have in Australia. Um, and but there's more of Australia that I want to see, funnily enough. Um, and so, you know, life is short, make the most of it. Now, we are running out of time, unfortunately, so I, I, but I, I do want to ask you a couple of quick questions before we jump into some quick-fire questions at the end. So I um, am a CEO of my own business, and I am always really interested in learning from other Others, other greats who have uh, who have done the same thing. When you are in the position of as leader within any organisation, what is your core focus and the fundamental, the foundation of who you are as a leader? What is your philosophy as a leader? Enablement. Mm. Uh, what does that mean? Um, understanding the organisation which you're leading, understanding what an opportunity looks like looks like, which can often be market-based, but not always, because if you're creating something entirely new, the market's not going to give you the answer. Um, understanding your stakeholders, whether it's your investors, whether it's your board, whether it's your team, whether it's importantly your customers, your clients, really having a good understanding of all those variables before you do anything. So be curious, ask a ton of questions, don't believe you've got all the answers. Um, nobody does. Um, be authentic. Um, always follow through on what you say you're going to do. And 
if you're not going to follow through, don't say it. Critical. Um, build any plan or strategy with your team so that there's a shared ownership of delivery of that strategy. Absolutely critical. Um, be consistent with your communication, especially if you're leading an organisation through a process of change. Always over-communicate. Uh, and it might seem like I've said this before. That's okay. Say it again. Use different words. Say it again. Say it again. Say it again. Be polite. Be gentle. Be persistent. Um, and keep communicating that vision until which time that vision becomes reality. Be brave. Uh, be prepared to take the bullets because you will. Don't shy away from that. Um, and, you know, share the successes. So realise that the buck will stop with you ultimately. Don't do the role if, you don't, if you're not ready for that. So um, they're just some of the roles, I think, of a leader. Mm. Um, leadership's complex. Mm. Um, the demands upon a leader just seem to grow all the time. And you kind of think, gosh, how can one person do this? Um, I probably realised relatively early on, especially when I was Lord Mayor of Adelaide, I didn't have all the answers. I mean, I was kind of leading a city which had an incredibly diverse stakeholder group. Not everybody agreed with each other on every issue. I had a council of 11 councillors, um, had a chief executive officer, four directors and 700 staff. Um, and... You know, it teaches you a heck of a lot about authenticity and leadership uh, and collaboration. But I certainly recall, and just an analogy briefly, is that there were some things which I announced when I was campaigning to be the Lord Mayor, which I made sure that I delivered on before I then embarked upon doing a whole lot of other stuff on behalf of the city um, because that built this kind of inherent level of trust between those that had, you know, in that context, voted for me. Um, I delivered that. I communicated that I delivered that. And then people said, oh, okay, he does what he says. Yeah. Um, now we can look at other things. Mm. So, um, yeah, look, leadership's not easy. It's complex. It's a privilege. Um, it's difficult. It's massively rewarding um, and critically important. Mm. Yeah, and there's a part in there where you said communication, over-communicate. And I'll echo that. I mean, we work, the business that I run and operate is um, experts in helping organisations through complex change, right, whether it's with their workforce or digital or you name it. And um, what we know about human behaviour is that people receive messages in different ways. Um, they absorb information in different ways. There are different things that whether it's logical brain, whether it's a relation emotional brain whether it's a blue sky holistic brain or a process and systems brain people receive information in different ways and um so when you are over communicating think about the different ways in which that you're communicating with your organization as well such a good point is the when you're a leader and you're in front of your team how are you going to get that message across when you're having a one-on-one -on -one, noting that all of your you know key team members might have a different style, how are you going to get your message across? Yeah. Being nuanced and being aware of who your audience is, I think is critical for a leader. You can't execute doing things the same way with every person, um, even, if the mess, even if the outcome is the desired outcome and that's the same. Yeah. 
you need to approach it in a different manner. So how I would work with the board of directors, how I'd work with my executive directors, how I'd work with my members in the Business SA example, how I'd work with my team may all be very subtly different. But it's still directed towards the same outcome. Correct. So being nuanced I think is actually really important. Absolutely. And it doesn't take you off message. You stay on message but you deliver it differently. Yeah. It's adaptability, isn't it, yeah. really? Uh, there's, a, there's the old saying, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. I, some, in some ways, that's a, a, a fallacy, which is treat others in the way they want to be treated, right? Like, that's the… Yes, probably, yes. It's yeah. probably even more powerful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I agree, Daniel. Right. We're going to just jump into a quick… Well, I've, I've, I'm a, I have not even gone through half of the questions I had for you today. This time has flown, um, which is a, a good sign. Uh, but we'll jump in because I know you're about to go off and do another, yet another keynote. So 2001, I think you said done, yeah, and 2000 odd keynotes. This is <laughs> Maybe it is the 2001st. <laughs> Who knows? Um, what excites you about the future, especially here in South Australia? Um, I think we're genuinely a very fortunate place. Um, I, what excites me is that our renewable energy trajectory as a state where we are we're currently sitting at about 72% renewable energy in our grid and we're about to embark upon the construction of a 250-watt hydrogen electrolyzer is actually world-leading. And we are doing things which in the fullness of a short period of time, the whole world will want. Yeah. So um, everyone's hearing about the green economy, the low emissions economy, sustainability, ESG, it's all in different language, but the message is actually fairly much the same. Corporates, SMEs, NGOs, not-for-profits, communities and governments of all persuasions are focused on this stuff and South Australia is leading it. Um, nationally and in many ways globally, it's an incredibly exciting period of time to be in South Australia when it comes to low emissions leadership. Yeah, great. What concerns you? At capacity. So we as a state need to be investing very heavily into capacity. Um, I, I think the university merger in Adelaide is a very good thing. Um, so when you talk capacity, it's not a matter of heads, it's more… Uh, oh, no, that's more… Yeah, it's probably it, both. It, it, and capability. It, and it's capacity. capability and capacity. So it's skill set and volume. Yeah. So to really realise the opportunities we have in front of us, we're going to need skilled, trained people and lots of them. Mm. That's a massive priority, massive priority. University merger will help. I think TAFE is making some good moves. Um, but educating people, I'm a big advocate for education, although I came to it lately or more lately in my career, is um, for people to be educating themselves and then re-educating themselves to remain competitive is absolutely critical. So I'm just going to divert real quickly. Sean Westcott, CEO of um, you know Sean, yeah, CEO of Mitsubishi. In the podcast we just recently done with him, he said that automation will help alleviate some of that those capacity concerns. Should we be focusing on? And he's saying we should focus on there as well. Uh, from a manufacturing perspective, he's probably exactly right. But not everything we do is manufacturing. Yeah. So uh, Sean is a great leader. Mm. Uh, I have had the privilege of knowing Sean for some time, and he is truly impressive. Um, but, you know, yeah, from Sean's perspective, it makes perfect sense yeah. from the role that he holds. But automation won't solve every problem. AI won't solve yeah, every correct. problem. You still got to deal with humans. Correct. 
Right. What are you reading right now? Good question. I'm reading uh, The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. You met Simon. I met Simon Sinek. How That's exciting un- was that? That is unbelievable. At the Grand Prix. Singapore, Singapore Grand Prix, wasn't it? I was at the Singapore Grand Prix and I'm kind of… I'm so jealous on both fronts. <laughs> I, I, I met this, I'm in this suite and I look to my right and I thought, I know this face. <laughs> and my brain is going at 100 miles an hour. I say, who is he? I said, it's Simon Sinek. I went, Simon. He looked around and said, I've got it right. Yeah. And we had a chat, a great chat. And I must say, he is as authentic in reality as he is on, you know, YouTube. Yeah. Um, he's great. Yeah. So I'm really enjoying that book. What did you speak about? What do we speak about? Yeah. We didn't speak about personal development. Yeah. We didn't speak about the Grand Prix. Uh, we spoke about – what did we talk about? We spoke about – we spoke about – we actually did start about where he started. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't realise. I think he was British-born. Oh, really? Yeah, before he moved to the States. Uh, and you can actually hear it. Yeah, there's in, a bit of twang. In, in his accent. Uh, but we kind of spoke about, I just kind of said, you know, what drives you to keep doing what you're doing? Because he's a bit of a, bit of oh, a, mate, he's, yeah. he's a, bit of a pioneer in yeah, this. He's, Simon said well, he has the ability to simplify things, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what we did speak about, uh, which I'm fascinated about, he did, he did a whole piece, I'm sure he wrote a book on it too, about how to find your why, yeah. which is how to find your purpose. Yeah. Uh, he, that's his big thing. We did talk about that. Yeah. He, he's fascinating. He's, yeah, top Start notch. Start with why is his book. That's is, it. Yeah. That's it. I haven't read that. That's next. It's fabulous to read. Yep. And th- there's a YouTube clip, um, which is, I think, one of the most downloaded TED Talks of all time. Really? Which is the right. Start With Why. Okay. Find Your Purpose. Yeah, Got it. Great. Got it. Um, what's one self-development book that you feel that stands out from the crowd? I read lots. What's one that you've gifted the most? Oh, that's interesting. It's a really good question. I sent a book last week uh, up to Penang in Malaysia to someone I met on my travels in my special envoy role because we were chatting about personal investment. And it was actually a book written by, what's his name, Michael Yardley, who's He's a, a property investor. Yes, property yeah, investor. I actually read all of his books. Really? Yeah. So I bought – I read one of his books recently. I liked it. I liked his style. Mm. I wrapped it up, wrote a card and sent it to her. Um, that was the latest I, – I gift books a lot. Mm. I, I always gift books. Mm. Um, I sent that one about two weeks ago. Fabulous. What's one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? How to say no. Yeah. It took me a long time. Uh, it took but me a long time. There's a, a method. Tim Ferriss, who is a world-famous podcaster. Four-hour work week. Four-hour work week. He's got a philosophy which is it's either – and I'm going to swear here. It's either a fuck yes or it's a no. <laughs> right. There's not, 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 none of this. Oh, There's maybe. nothing in between. It's like it's just I'm absolute certain I want to do this or it's a no. Right. Yeah. I love that. It's I, actually a good lens, it isn't is, it? It is, yeah. Yes. Um, if you could have coffee with one current or historical figure, who would it be? Uh, historical figure – um, since left his mortal coil, Lee Kuan Yew, former president of Singapore. Uh, okay. uh, I, the most outstanding individual in world history. I'm going to have to look into that. Has there anything been written on? Many, many books. Yeah? Okay. Uh, created Singapore in 1965 literally out of nothing uh, and built it to be one of the most extraordinary societies, uh, prosperous places. 
I I, I've never been. I want to go, and I want to go to the incredible. Grand Prix so badly. Yeah. Um, what's one of the be- some of the best advice that you've ever received? Uh, someone told me you'll never know it all, so don't try. Uh, which keeps you humble, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was good advice. Um, I've had so much advice because I've probably each decade for the last three or four at least I've always had a mentor. Yeah. Uh, and I still have them. Uh, and my mentors are often brutal. Mm. They don't mince their words and I'm okay with that. Um, it's the best way to be. Yeah. It's really good. You know, I, I also believe that everybody has a boss. doesn't matter where you are in life. Correct. Everyone has a boss. Correct. And the – so, look, have a mentor, great lesson. Um, don't believe you. Know it all, great lesson. Um, but I think humility in today's day and age is something we don't talk about very often. But to me that's incredibly important. Humility mixed with curiosity. Yep. Um, what's one habit that holds you back the most? Um, details. Mm. All the time. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm naturally a detail-orientated person who is much better when I work on things than in things. Yeah. So can you see the tension? Yeah. Absolutely. So I've just got to continue to ex- extricate myself from the detail. What's one thing that annoys you the most? You've been talking to my wife? <laughs> Is there no habit? <laughs> She's probably got a shopping list. <laughs> um, what annoys me the most? Um, there are only internal traits of, you know, I get frustrated when I do too much detail, although I'm really good at it. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah. You I spend too much time. Yeah, I, yeah. I spend too much time. Um, I just need to delegate and let go. Now, you think that would be a lesson I would have absolutely mastered by now i'm much better at it when i was but i get frustrated when i do too much detail it holds me back it actually holds other people back i just need to let go yeah if you could pay someone to do a chore for you which chore would it be all the details all the details all the details what's one word you absolutely hate i don't like the word no um although Ironically, I'm probably using it a little bit more than what I used to be. Um, no, I don't like the word can't. can't yeah, I agree. yeah I, because you use the word curiosity. That's so important. Like being curious and challenging things in your own mind and then challenging things in a business, in an enterprise, in an organization, in a community is really important because that's how you create progress. Mm. There will always be people who will shout you down, Yeah. right? Progress is not built any other way other than changing things mm. and change can be threatening. Brilliant. What's the first thing you would do if you became invisible? Gosh, I love these <laughs> questions. Um, if I became invisible, what was the first thing I'd do? You know what I'd love to do and what I love? My, I think one of the greatest luxuries in life is reading. Yeah. I, I love reading. So if I became invisible, I would become a voracious reader. But the – Do you audio book? I do. Yeah. But I book book. Yeah, you book book. Yeah. I sometimes do both. I audio yeah. and read. Yeah. I feel like I get the dual learning. Yeah. Um, someone shared with me the other day, and I must say I thought this was pretty profound. Um, when you're in a stage of your life where you are firmly focused on giving back, do it anonymously, mm. which means do it with no visibility. Mm. Um, and it's a bit counterintuitive for many, many folks. If you're giving back, no one needs to know it's you. Mm. No one, right? 
you're you're doing it because you want to do it. You're not doing it because you're selfishly wanting to do it. You're doing it because you're wanting to do it for the betterment of others. So do it quietly, do it discreetly, do it. Yeah. So that would be my answer to the invisible question. Fabulous. Now, you may or may not, because I didn't flick you this before, but my favourite question on this podcast is what's your best dad joke, which is what's your best shit joke? Yes, I think you warmed me up for that one. <laughs> yes, you did. I did. Um, you know, I don't think I was born <laughs> with the joke gene. Um, my wife's father was the most incredible prankster. Yeah. Just like he, he would just light up a table with jokes. I don't think I was born with that. I actually yeah. just can't find that in my DNA. Um, what's my – again, I'm going to take you on notice yeah. nah. because I'm going to come up with something really lame, Daniel, and I don't want to finish the podcast on that, on that, that way. Those jokes are supposed to be lame. That's the beauty of it. Oh, yeah, thing. you're probably right. <laughs> Your dad jokes usually are yeah. horribly lame, aren't they? Nah, not a problem at all. Look, Martin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you agreeing to come on. I'm saying yes. You're saying no to, to many more people but saying yes and coming on the show today. Uh, you've done a lot for this state of South Australia and Australia and um, you continue to give your time and expertise to, to the people of South Australia, which I think we're all very grateful for. And um, thank you again for everything that you've done and thanks again for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you to your listeners. I hope that's kind of provided some value. I'm big one for no one's got a monopoly on good ideas and no one's got a monopoly on experience. But we all learn from each other. So I hope this has added some value. Thanks. It's been great. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care, guys. All the best.